Ephesians chapter 2. I want to start just by reading uh, the first few verses over us this morning as we jump in together. It starts like this. Uh, it's going to be pretty heavy. It starts in verse 1. It says, as for you, he's writing to Christians here. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Welcome to Ethos. Welcome to church. How, how's that for an encouragement? Like, are any of you going to put that verse on a coffee mug this week and just like set it on the edge of your desk and like, oh, deserving of wrath. Here we go. I mean, it's, it's weighty, isn't it? And it's true. It's true. I was thinking of that this week, and I was reminded of this moment when I was in seventh grade. And uh, for me, you know, seventh grade is kind of a difficult year. Uh, maybe seventh grade is just difficult for everyone, and maybe that just comes with the territory of seventh grade. But for me, um, that was a year of real transition for our family. Uh, my family, uh, I'm from South Carolina, but for a few years we lived in a small kind of Hick town in, uh, you know, southern, uh, t- kind of middle Tennessee, not too far from here. And we lived there for a few years, and it was a great experience for most of the time that we lived there. And in my seventh grade year, it became pretty clear that we were going to transition back to South Carolina. Dad was taking a job in Charleston, so we're going to move. And it, it was this year where I was really trying to find myself and, you know, what makes me me and blah, 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 you know, all the things that you go through in middle school. And in fact, I think we kind of go through that for the rest of our lives. But I remember in, in middle school, it was just so strong and it was so present. And I remember kind of learning in that season that I wasn't a a rebellious teenager. I didn't do some of the things that get teenagers a lot of bad press in our culture. But I I was a very mischievous teenager. Like, I loved pranks. I loved to mess with people. Uh, I liked to make people laugh. And as a seventh grader, without much discernment, that got me in all kinds of trouble. I was constantly finding the line and then asking, how bad will it be if I go across that line? And and, and that was just kind of my, my journey. And I had this one teacher in seventh grade that it almost seemed as if he took joy in putting me in my place. Now, hindsight lets me know that he was actually just an amazing teacher. He was a a great dude. He, like, cared about me, and he was trying to grow me into a man. But at that point in my life, I thought he was Hitler incarnate, you know, that he he was there to squash everything fun. So seventh grade, I had him for first period and fifth period every day, and and it was just like constantly banging heads with this one teacher. And so I remember when we found out that uh, our family was going to move kind of halfway through the year, I, I remember vividly sitting at the, the cafeteria lunch tables with my buddies. And I'm like, on my last day of school here, I'm just going to give this guy heck. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to pull pranks on him. And, and I don't say that bragging. That was just kind of the depravity of my heart as a seventh grader. It's true. I was just thinking, I'm going out with style. And so... The, the, the last day rolls around, and that day I had sat, signed up for flag duty. Did any of you ever have flag duty, you know, where you'd take the American flag out and you'd put it up? And the only reason you signed up for flag duty was to get out of class. And so I thought, this will be my perfect out. I'll get out of class, and then the war will begin. And so, you know, I, I get out, and I, I begin putting these pranks in motion. I'm not going to tell you that, because I don't want you to think they're funny. It was actually pretty... Um, uh, pretty twisted that that's the way that I thought, but it's just who I was. So I remember going out and I was pulling these pranks on the teacher and I come back to the class and the, the room is dark. And that threw me off because I don't know if you've ever been in a classroom, but they're not supposed to be dark. And I'm like, 
walked in. I'm like, what's going on here? And I, as soon as I opened the, the door, everyone just yells, surprise! And like a baby, I just start weeping. And I think the most embarrassing thing for a seventh grade boy is to weep in front of the kids <laughs> in school. And I'm just weeping. And I'm weeping because all of a sudden, who I am and what I've just done has caught up with me. And it dawned on me that in the moment, like literally at the exact same time that I was trying to bring this man down, he was trying to build me up. Like in the exact same moment that I was choosing rebellion, this guy was masterminding my blessing. And he like brings me in and he sits me down on this stool, true story. He brings me this basket with letters that the kids had written and that my teachers had written. They had my favorite movie playing on the TV screen, which at the time was Billy Madison on VHS, just playing in the, in the background. They had my favorite food. I'm just like living the dream. And on the inside, I'm going, I'm the, the crappiest human being on planet Earth. It's one of those moments when I was just coming face to face with this reality that what I deserved to get in that moment and what I got in that moment were two totally different things. Have you ever been there before? Where you realize there was this chasm between who you are and how you've been treated. What you deserved and, and what you got. I found out about an hour later when I was hanging out with my friends that my teacher had blessed me, not because he was ignorant of what I was getting ready to do. He blessed me despite the fact that he knew it. Two weeks before, he'd sit up in front of my class and he said, hey, this is gonna be Dave's last day of school. We're gonna have a surprise party for him. We gotta figure out how to get him out of the classroom. And my buddies, Dale Bagby and Brandon Romer, you can look them up on Facebook. They immediately ratted me out. They said, Dave's planning to prank you big time that day. We could get him out of the classroom and, and use that time against him. And I'm like, oh. This man didn't bless me from a posture of ignorance. He blessed me because he knew me. And it was one of the clearest like, examples of the gospel that I had up to that point in my life. I go, because isn't this the story of the Bible? The story of, of the Bible is that in Jesus, what we deserve and what we get are two entirely different things. That when we were in our act of rebellion, when we were literally putting God to death, God was working to bring you to life. That's the scandal. That's the scandal of the gospel. That when you were actively rebelling, God was in the act of restoring and redeeming and resurrecting. And Paul is gonna take us on a metaphorical field trip this morning. He's gonna take us back, those of us that are Christians, and he's gonna say, I want you to remember who you were because unless you remember who you were, you'll never appreciate what it is that you have. Have you ever been around a kid that just grew up in a rich home with rich parents and rich grandparents and even the air they breathe is rich, like everything about them is rich and they're so rich they have no appreciation of the richness. And Paul's gonna say, unless you understand who you were, you will never appreciate who you are in Christ. And this is what he's gonna to say to us out of Ephesians chapter two. There's two lies that I think the enemy is gonna bombard us with this morning as we read this text. And if you take notes, I'd encourage you to write them down because I think they're gonna come at us in the next four weeks as we go through Ephesians chapter two. And the first lie is this, that sin, as the Bible speaks of it, that sin is not really that serious. 
It's a lie that your heart is gonna be confronted with this morning as we look at what Paul says about sin. And there's gonna be a part of some of our hearts that are gonna go, okay, is it really this big of a deal? The other lie that we're gonna be tempted to believe is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. If the first is that sin isn't that serious, the second lie is that salvation can't possibly be this good. And I think that it is great temptation amidst Bible Belt believing Christians There's this great temptation to find ourselves somewhere in the middle of those two lies and to call it a Sunday. And the Bible is gonna bring us face to face with the reality of who we were so we can begin to savor and appreciate who it is that we are in Jesus. And this is what he's gonna say to us. Look at Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna start in verse one. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions, in your sins. All of chapter one in the book of Ephesians is about what we've been given in Jesus. It says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours in Jesus. It says you've been saved, forgiven, adopted, you've been given the family secret, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you have resurrection power, you can know God. I mean, Paul is just gushing. He's saying, look at everything that you've been given. And then you get to Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and he's gonna say, but let me remind you of what it is that you deserved. He says, this is, this is who you were. He says, as for you, spiritually, you were dead in your sin, in your transgressions. Spiritually speaking, you were unresponsive to God, to his voice, to his love, to his ways, to his character, to his desire. Spiritually speaking, you were dead. Have you ever been in the presence of a dead person before? That's kind of a weird question. Remember when I was five years old at a birthday party with my cousins, my grandfather dropped dead in front of us. In one moment, he's cooking hamburgers. Next moment, he's laying on the pavement. It was like one of the most painful days in our family. I remember it vividly. It's one of my first vivid memories, actually. And there's something interesting about being in the presence of a person who's dead because in that moment, you see what the absence of life looks like. You know, if life is about being able to respond and to enjoy, to, uh, to, to listen, to interact, death is the exact opposite of that in every way. And Paul says, this was the reality before Jesus entered into the picture. This was all of your realities. This is all of our realities. That spiritually speaking, we were laying dead to rights on the driveway. We couldn't respond to the Father's voice. We didn't know his love. We didn't care about his ways. This is who we were. He says, as for you, you're dead in your sins and your transgressions. He keeps going, verse 2. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now work and those who are disobedient. He's talking about Satan there. Verse three, he says, all of us lived among them at one time. And he says, and so uh, this was your life. Before Jesus, you, you were enslaved to the gravitational pull of the world towards its greed and its, its lust and its self-centeredness and its distractedness and its busyness. He says, he says, you were enslaved to the ways of the world. You were responsive to the enticements of your spiritual enemy, the devil. He says, he, he would tempt you and you would respond willingly. He says, and the way that this played out in your life is, look at verse three, he says, you gratified you gratified the, the cravings of your flesh. That word gratified is, is really important in the New Testament epistles. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but you should underline that word gratified. It literally means to make peace with someone, to make peace with something. And so Paul's saying, hey, here's, here's the reality of who you were 
before Jesus came into the picture. Before Jesus came in the picture, it's not just that you were dead in sin and transgression. It's not just that you followed the ways of the world. He said, you consistently made peace with everything in your soul that was at war with God. Before Jesus entered the picture, you weren't struggling to defeat lust in your life. You made space for it intentionally. Before Jesus was in the picture, you didn't care whether or not your words were verbally abusive to the people around you. You made peace with that, and you just kind of said, hey, this is who I am, take it or leave it. He says, this is your nature. He says, before Christ entered the picture, you were dead in sin, enslaved to your sin masters, and you had made peace with everything that you'd become. And he ends in verse three like this. And he says, and you along with the rest by nature, were deserving of wrath. Let's talk about what that means for just a minute. Uh, what does wrath mean in the Bible? I'll just give you my definition. Wrath is the appropriate and passionate response of a good and holy God towards anything that is ungood and unholy. God is not wrathful. God is love. But God in his love does display wrath towards all that is unholy and all that is ungood. It's his appropriate, passionate response towards anything and everything that seeks to destroy that which is good and holy in the world. And Paul's gonna say there was a season in your life where what you deserved was to be on the receiving end of God's passionate and appropriate response towards that which is ungood and unholy. Now, I just wanna name what many of you are probably feeling right now. And that is, that feels a bit harsh. Like some of you are going right now, like I, I don't know that that's what anybody deserves. Dave, I'm just too loving to believe that anybody deserves that. I go, are you more loving than God? See, the Bible says that this is what all people walking in sin actually deserve. Saying about a conversation with one of my friends recently, he's a self-pronounced atheist. And he and I are talking about God together. And I'm like, hey, hey dude, what, what's your biggest hang-up with God right now? And he says, if, if God is so loving and so holy and so powerful, why in the world does God let guys like Assad over in Syria bomb children with chemical warfare? Have you ever felt that before? Like, if God is so holy and good and powerful, like, how can he let that go on? And in that moment, as I'm talking to my friend who's an atheist, I realized his issue with God has nothing to do with God's love. His issue with God is with God's apparent lack of wrath. My atheist friend doesn't want God to be more loving. He wants him to be more wrathful. Because in every one of you, whether you're a Christian or not, there's something in your soul that longs for God to put evil in its place. Something in every one of us longs for that. And here's the deal, in your soul, you want God to be wrathful. You just don't want him to be wrathful towards you. 
You believe there's evil in the world. You don't believe there's evil in you. And this is the scandalous, offensive claims of the Holy Scriptures, is that inside every human being are the seeds that lead to the the warfare that we're witnessing in Assad. There's a part of us that goes, no, sin really is measured on a sliding scale. There's like Nashville, Bible Belt Christianity sin. And then there's the terror of war sin. And don't you dare put me in the same spectrum. And the Bible says, all of us. All of us. There's some of you right here going, well, that's just Paul. Paul is angry. Paul is like just uptight. And I go, let's look at Jesus. Go to John chapter eight for a second. Don't you see Jesus? Jesus, the most loving human being that ever walked the face of the earth. This is what Jesus says. John chapter eight, verse 21, he's talking to some religious people just like us. He says, once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me. Listen to this, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jump down to verse 23. He says, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. This is Jesus speaking. If you do not believe that I am the one that I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. He said that four times now. Go to verse 25. They say, well, who are you, they asked. I am just what I have been claiming to be all along. He's already told them he's the son of God. Verse 26, I have much to say. This is Jesus speaking. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is reliable. And what I've heard from him, I tell the world. Or take John 3.16 through 18 for just a minute. You remember John 3.16? I love this verse. Maybe my favorite verse in the Bible because it is the picture of God's heart. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I love that picture. It's one of the truest pictures of God in all the Bible. It's what Jesus said. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. And then verse 17 is just as beautiful. Where he goes on and he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world for anyone that believes in him. But verse 18 is a verse that doesn't get a lot of press in American Christianity. Because in verse 18, Jesus goes on to say, and I'm telling you the truth, whoever does not believe in me already stands condemned. It's the words of Jesus. And Jesus was not scared to talk about the seriousness of sin. And we live in a culture right now that is working so hard to elevate self and to degrade the reality of sin. To elevate who we are and to devalue who God is. And Jesus knows that sin is the disease that will wreck the soul for all of eternity if it's not dealt with, with the passionate, appropriate response of God's wrath. And he puts it out there, and Paul says, before we were in Christ, we were marked by death, and what we deserve was wrath. 
Now, if the Bible ended here, this would be so depressing. But the Bible doesn't end here. And I love this. Look back at verse 3. He says, like all, by nature, you were deserving of wrath, but God, but God, but God in his great love for us, but God who is rich in mercy. Look at verse 4. Not my words. It's the words of God. But God in his great love for us, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. When you were dead on the concrete, you could do nothing. Couldn't save yourself. Jesus reached down. And what you deserved, he took. And what he deserved, he gave. Great exchange. And Paul goes, unless you understand who you were and what you deserved, you never will embrace who you are and what you have. You will treat the resurrection and the salvation of Christ like a petty gift that you've been given at Christmas that can be discarded whenever you please. He says, but when you know who you were and when you know what you've been given, then you understand the gift that you have in Christ. He says, this was your story, dead in sin, no hope, no chance, but God, rich, in mercy and grace and love, raised you up. And here's the beauty. The Bible keeps showing you this over and over and over. The, the only thing greater than your sin against a holy God, the only thing more significant than the way that you have wronged God is the love that God has for you. The only thing more significant than your indebtedness against God himself is God's love and mercy and grace towards you. And this is the great scandal, is that in Christ, who we were and who we are are worlds apart. And what we deserved and what we get couldn't be any more different. This reminder that when we were putting God to death, he was bringing us to life. And some of you right now are experiencing it. You are there at the classroom and the lights are off and the lights have come on and all of a sudden you're recognizing, hey, what I'm getting is not what I deserve and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I believe when we grasp this, it, it changes everything. Those of you that are Christians, I wanna to speak to you for just a moment. So I'm just talking to those of you that have been saved by Jesus. Look back at verse one. This is so important, verse one. He says, as for you, you were. You were sex addicts. You were alcoholics. You were liars and cheats. You were self-centered. You were greedy. You were immoral. You were bad husbands. You were bad wives. You were abusive. You were addicted. But who you were and who you are are different. And don't ever get them confused. Don't ever get them confused again. Because the work that Christ has finished is sufficient and he's raised you. And who you were and who you are are worlds apart. Embrace that. When you understand this, everything begins to change. How you view yourself. You know, Romans 12 tells us that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. In, in other words, as we begin to think differently, everything changes in the way that we're living. And as this gospel truth of Ephesians 1-5 through really gets in the heart, really gets in the mind, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you view yourself, right? 
And so when you realize that you're here this morning, not because you grew up in the right home or because you're so smart or you're so enlightened or because you figured it out, but when you realize this morning that you were dead on the driveway in Christ and his sufficiency raised you up, boy, it changes everything because you realize your salvation is not something you purchased. Your salvation is not something you earned. Your salvation is not something you secured. And so it's something you can't lose. Like when you understand that Christ has done this, it anchors your feet in the concrete of God's love. And no matter what comes against you, the hell or high water, no matter what trouble or hardship or pain, you go, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And when you think about this, everything changes. This is who you were. It's not who you are. Who you were was a hopeless sinner. Who you are is a child of God. Changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see everybody around you. See, I'm convinced when Christians really understand the gospel and not just church attendance, when Christians understand the gospel, we become the kindest, most generous, most patient, humble human beings on earth. Because we realize the status that we've been given in God had nothing to do with who we are as people. When you really embrace that reality, oh my goodness, everything changes. So all of a sudden, the way you begin to view your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends that aren't yet saved by Christ, you don't view them through a lens of arrogance. You don't view them through this kind of higher than thou mentality. You view them through the lens of someone that remembers what it was like to be dead. I think back to one of my mentors, a guy named Steve Yates. When I was in high school, Steve was a volunteer with our youth group, and Steve was absolutely insane. He was crazy. But in his late 20s, he became a follower of Jesus, and he was still really rough around the edges. But what Steve knew was he remembered, he had the fresh scent of death in his nose. He remembered what it was like to be spiritually dead. And he'd been radically wrecked by the grace of God. And so he had this ability to hang out with teenagers that, whose lives were in messes themselves. And he would hang out with us in the midst of our mess and he would never placate our sins. He would never soften the reality of sin because Steve had tasted where all sin would lead. But at the same time, he never crushed us in our sin. He never held it over us. He never pushed us down in it. He was gracious and kind and humble and he could tell us the truth about who we were and remind us of who it is that God is. And I'm convinced that when the gospel gets a hold of the heart, when the gospel gets a hold of the mind, it doesn't just change the way we view ourselves, it changes the way we view all of the people around us that are still living the way that every one of us lived. And I think sometimes we forget that. Have you been saved too long? Because <laughs> sometimes when you've been saved so long, you forget the smell of death. I love this, it changes the way you view yourself, it changes the way you view people around you, and it changes the way you view God. I'm telling you, there is no way you can view God as punitive and angry and distant and judgmental. There's no way you can view him that way by actually reading the entirety of the scriptures. Because what you see over and over and over is although he will deal accordingly with sin in certain times and places and in certain ways, what you see over and over and over is that his son Jesus 
came and that Jesus is God's dissertation on himself. Jesus is the one that is showing us what the heavenly father is really like. And what Jesus came to show us is that when we were in the hallways rebelling against the professor, as we came into the room, he was throwing the party and the party is open to anyone. And it changes the way we view God and everything else begins to follow suit. And so for those of you that were Christians, it is significant and it is important to remember who you were. But don't confuse that with who you are. And we need both in order to walk with Jesus accordingly. I wanna speak to those of you that are not Christians. And I just wanna speak as plainly as I know how without any Christian language. I'm just gonna try to speak, at you, speak with you for a second, okay? Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no eternal hope for your future. Apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, there is no eternal hope for your future. You can't serve enough, you can't give enough, you can't love enough. You can't do enough rights to undo all of the wrongs. And I realize that what I'm saying right now is so contrary to the message of our culture, it will literally take the act of God's Holy Spirit to help you believe it. But it's true. You can live a great life. You can have a great marriage. You can have a good financial health. You can, you, you can have a great career, but you cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ, and there is no eternal security. See, religion... Right now, if we were religious, religion would look at you in this moment, and this is what religion would say to you. So clean yourself up and come and join the party. Here's how you join our church. Here's what you do. Here's how you get in. Stop these habits. Start these habits. Here's, here's how you get in. That's what religion would teach you. Religion says, clean yourself up and then come into the party. But Jesus says, come to the party and I'll clean you up. And they're two totally different messages. Jesus says, show up at the party in your worst moment and I'll be there to transform you because I know who you are. Yeah. And it's the claims of the gospel. And so for those of you who are not in Christ, don't stay there. Verse one is speaking to Christians and says, this is who you were. But if Paul was writing to you, non-Christians, he'd say, this is who you are, but God, who is rich in mercy, full of great love, and has grace, is turning the light on for you right now. And that's what we pray for. This morning, you can go from death to life. You can find yourself in the party. The Spirit of God can be poured out in your life and he can begin to transform everything about who you are and how you think and what you live and what you do. It'll be a journey and we're in it together. If there's any part of you that is curious about that or offended by that or wanna talk more about that, there'll be some men and women in the back at the respond banner and up front at the respond banner. We'd love to talk and pray and answer any questions that you have. For the rest of us, we're gonna take communion. And communion is, is this celebration that we as followers of Jesus have a firm hold on who we were and who we are and we thank God that those two things are different. That what we get and what we deserve are worlds apart. And so let's stand together, I'll pray over us. And we'll get ready for communion.
Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I just ask that if I said anything today that was not of you, that we'd forget it immediately. And that God, if I said anything that was from you, that it would set deeply in our hearts, that God, it would bear great fruit, and that God, you would do what only you could do. I pray that in the name and the power of Jesus, you would turn the lights on for those of us that have found ourselves standing in a metaphorical classroom and we've realized the way to who we are. God, would you raise people to life in Christ today? God, would you remind Christians of who we were so we can savor who we are? It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks. Amen.